Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke with Ross Kemp. Ross is an investigative journalist renowned for his documentaries on gangs and all manner of extreme conditions. He's also probably known to you if you're English or British or English speaking even perhaps as Grant Mitchell, a character indelibly marked into the psyche of people of a particular age myself very much in the sweet spot of that demographic and even during that conversation there were times where well all of the East Enders greats Frank Butcher Tiffany Peggy Mitchell paraded through my imagination but now Ross snobbery aside I would say is a very important documentary filmmaker putting himself in front of vulnerable or extreme people in like it's I don't know he's a real thrill seeking extremist I would say he's an, it's a very interesting conversation with a very very calm kind compassionate and intrepid man and I think you'll be into it his current season um or his current show is on ITV Ross Kemp living with if you want to check it out it's um he does like a show on homelessness young carers knife crime and online gambling look for that on ITV hub it's probably been on by now Thanks for all your comments on last week's podcast with Sarah Wilson. Here are some of them comments. Do you remember Sarah Wilson? Was she an amazing person? Ildar Kirk goes, Sarah Wilson, absolutely brilliant on Under the Skin. Her wisdom, abundance, love and generosity inspire me to focus out more and use my power and my voice to be in service of others. Well, I think that's exactly what she would want. Lauren May Yoga says... All the podcasts are inspiring, but this one really is. I love the discussion on hope and the fact that people are always talking about these concepts in other ways. And this podcast is what gives me hope. Well, that's beautifully circuitous and um, illuminating. The discussion about the monk coming down the hill, says El Hodgetts, was particularly encouraging for me. It's been an ongoing question between living in the world and looking after oneself. You've got to do both. You've got to rest, but there must be effort absolutely vital that you do both and this is from Jasmine Hemsley who's a a friend of me and my wife's she's a good person and I would say what is she sort of like a lifestyle cook chef expert in all manner of things but I saw her the other day she was saying she was going to do some sort of sound bath on me and the missus who don't want a sound bath who don't want to be gonged into another dimension I can tell you now that I do Jasmine said I must recommend his podcast, meaning me, Under the Skin, with my good friend Sarah Wilson. It's a brilliant listen and explores using anxiety to implement real change. This podcast might truly get under your skin, hopefully in a good way, but if it stirs up some discomfort, then have a good nosy. Why? What lovely language she's using. Let's get her on here. Bit by bit, step by step, our awareness and consciousness is changing with these kind of conversations. Just listening to people speak about their journeys imbues us with new language to reflect on our own journey. Then she's got an emoji of a plane taking off diagonally in an angle that to me looks precarious anyway over and out for now i've got a recipe to write up then there's some waving hands thank you very much jasmine for your encouragement very beautiful hey do you want to come and see me speaking at the Greenbelt festival in corby on the 24th 24th of august i nearly invented a number there called the 25th i was on the 25th of august that's when i had to have the operation done on my knee 
24th of August, you know, the actual number. Come there and see me talking. It will be good. Sign up for my YouTube channel as well, so where you get elongated insights into my, I would call them uh, channeling. That's what I'm calling it now, where I just open up the old consciousness and dish out advice on subjects. It's uh, mostly spiritual discourse, but often commenting on the political reality and trying to provide an alternative take on... uh, well, I suppose the challenges that we face as individuals and communally. So that's my YouTube channel, Russell Brand. Follow me on Instagram. Follow me on uh, Twitter, Rusty Rockets on Twitter, Russell Brand on Instagram. That's basically all I need from you, other than I want you to sign up for my mailing list. Go to russellbrand.com, sign up for it. You'll hear all sorts of special offers. You'll get, um, you'll also get like free, secretive, clandestine weird content sent into your inbox but all that aside let's turn our attention now to the brilliant ross kemp on under the skin trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route yes that's that's exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss doesn't look like an ideology what's beneath the surface of people we admire of the ideas that define our time the history we are told Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Ross, I'm so happy to be able to do a podcast with you. We've been talking for ages planning it. Yeah, it's it's, it's really nice. It's I'm slightly nervous. But well, I don't know why. Is why that? do you think that is? I don't know. Maybe it's I know that you're a very bright man and maybe I'm scared about what I'm going to reveal about myself. Who knows? It's very endearing to admit being nervous in these kind of situations, I think. It's very, very disarming. But you're not the sort of person that we would typically associate with that type of emotional honesty. I mean, like you, for someone my age, and I know we're about the same age, probably a couple of years younger, but like, like you exist in our cultural imagination as a soap opera cray twin, <laughs> one of the... Mitchell, Mitchell brothers, brothers. Yeah. So, and then like and even like tangentially I, I remember like it was quite a while before the thing is with soap opera stars I suppose is they're so uh, embedded in your memory and imagination that I actually thought that you were in the paratroopers <laughs> things that were at, like, in the Grant. parachute regiment yeah Grant Mitchell actually the tattoos on the wrong arm which was pointed out to me very early on but by then it was continuity so it had to remain on the on the wrong arm it should be on your right arm not on your left arm those poor men their, their cultural badges and yeah, attaches yeah, yeah. but po- then straight out of EastEnders like you're like it was all the, like Ross Kemp with gangs it was, it was still like in a sense built around machismo now that I know you a bit I'm actually a very sensitive <laughs> open articulate intellectual emotionally available intellectually curious man how come why do you think is it just the way you look what's gone on I think I think that has a massive influence particularly as an actor on how you're you're cast and how you're perceived and then if you underline it by playing a character like that for so long then it's it's understandable that people people associate you with those those that kind of behaviour I guess and that look but um I think it's it, it's been a help, and I think it's also been a hindrance. You know, as I say, you know, if you go to Guatemala, no one's watched EastEnders, um, and people take you on face value, you yeah. know, as a bored white bloke. Um, uh, but if you're filming in the UK, it can open doors and it can also close them. How come that after EastEnders, 
you what was it that got you into all of the gangs and documentaries true story i um i got what was known then as a golden handcuffs deal it was probably a brass handcuffs deal now compared to how much people <laughs> people earn but um it was a lot of money and um i w it was for an acting contract and instead of working every day virtually which you did in eastenders i suddenly had so much time on my hands because i was only shooting about i don't know 50 days a year so i was getting bored um i was living in battersea um and i went out and had lunch with the late great aa gill uh, yeah remember adrian yeah, AA gill and um he said to me, oh, darling, I just, awful. someone asked me to be do a documentary about America's infatuation with firearms. And I obviously turned it down. And he was, you know, saying, I don't want to be in, in television. I, I critique television. I do not perform on the television or in television. Anyway, just slipped past me. Anyway, four or five days later, and this is really before the internet had come in and before mobile phones, so it was a long time ago. My landline rang, because that's the only thing you had, and it was Lion Television asking me and saying, Ross, you're the first person I thought <laughs> of for this job. And I went, yeah, of course I am. Anyway, I did it, and then during making it, I met a guy I'd been shot 26 times, and I went, sorry, no one's been shot 26 times and survives. And I met Bloodhound, um, and I got on like a house on fire with him. I was a white bloke from Essex, and he was a black lad um, from South L.A., and he was a member of the Bloods. And we just hit it off. And uh, obviously I had to ask him uh, uh, how, how many times he'd been shot. And he just, he just, he lifted his top up and he'd been cranked open twice. At one point he'd taken six nine mils in the chest. While he was on the ground, the Crip had pulled the trigger of the gun under his chin. He had taken the end of his tongue off. He had exited at the side of his nostril, re-entered at the arch of his brow here and then stopped between the skin and the skull here and he had a skull where it had been taken out and he lifted his red bandana to show me and he literally was you know he looked like a pincushion he'd taken two hollow points here he'd take, he was sending weed through a window and someone had fired a 2-2 pistol six times across his groin he lost one of his testicles but he still had two kids he was very very pleased to say but the thing for me was that he was really articulate he was really bright uh, um, he was compassionate uh, he did have an AK-47 we were sitting in his back of his yard he had an AK-47 he knew how to cover it in Vaseline and, um, and bleach to remove DNA he had a, a Smith & Wesson tucked down the back of his pants in case that jammed. And he said very openly that if, there's, if a car slows down and starts firing, I'll be firing back so you better hit the ground. Uh, and I couldn't help thinking, though, Russell, that had he been born 15 blocks in another direction, he would have been a school teacher, he would have been you know, a leader in his community, well, he is a leader in a community, but a different type of leader in his own community. Uh, and so when I, I left... I stayed right, like everyone else left. I stayed with him. We, we drank and um, we got well, After you stopped filming, you just hung out. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I uh, couldn't help thinking that that, that, that that was the antithesis of what I was seeing on MTV. You know, it was a time of all the braces. It was the time of, you know, everyone wearing gold braces. There were gold-plated AKs. People were, you know, driving around in fast cars doing rap songs. And that was all that you were seeing in terms of Perceived, and you didn't see the fact that he was scared. You didn't see the fact that he was impoverished. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. So right from that first somewhat accidental entry into documentary, 
uh, a lot of themes that you continue to explore are present. The difference between the raw truth and the glamorous ideal and that even in extreme circumstances, the participants, like a gangster like Bloodhound, it's only inadvertently mm. to some degree in yeah, that situation. Absolutely, 100% not his own doing. 100% his environment, I would suggest. And then his ability to survive in that environment had made him a leader, mainly because his ability to survive being shot so many times. Yeah. Why do you think... Like, what, you've got an amazing memory, by the way, as well. I was trying to think then, is it because you sit in the edits, but you always remember like 22, number of bullets, <laughs> the bullet goes here, the bullet goes there. And you're like this, but then whenever you talk about your projects, I remember once you talked to me about, I think when you went to Libya, and you talked about some of the people that you met out there, and uh, like I think someone gave birth while you were there yeah, and was stuff like that. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Um, yeah I, 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 I visualise the stuff and... and and when we're doing in the edit, obviously you see it time in, and time and time again. But um, a lot of it does stay with me, and I, I'm happy for it to stay with me. And other stuff I can junk, so I'm lucky in that respect. Why are you so interested in extremes? Why is it like always gangs, violence, extreme poverty, homelessness? These the the what I suppose we could refer to as the margins yeah. or the underbelly. What is it? What why are you drawn to that? Because I think you only get one slot, a uh, chance. And if you've got an opportunity to kind of look what's uh, what's under the rock, then have a look. You're mm. not going to get a second chance. And also, I've I've become comfortable there. Yeah. Um. You know, I I drop out of my very nice house. I think it's a very nice house in Berkshire. <laughs> um. And and you know, get on a plane and land. Just say you know, you land in Libya or wherever you, you might land. And I got into the habit of being able to just it's like like it's like when you went when i went to elstree i put on grant's shirt now it's not very different from this shirt but it was grant's shirt and i became grant and then as soon as i took it off even though the people in the traffic with me on the m25 still saw grant in the car i wasn't grant i was ross and i think that's an amazing that i can also drop fast asleep in an a i can drop fast asleep in an apc and i'm a personnel carrier in a chinook or in my dressing room at Street, like I used to be able to behind the bar of the Vic, as it was getting to like five to one, I literally start dozing. If I was in the back of shot, I'd kind of slip out the side of shot. And like, <laughs> by the time I hit my dressing room, my little cell, uh, you know, my little porter cabin, I'd be asleep. And then I'd wake up at five to two, go into makeup, a bit of slap on my head, eat a cheese and pickle sandwich from behind the bar, and that was my day. Bloody hell, you're working long hours. Oh, you mate, I used was to that sleep. AM all that stuff. I used to sleep in my dressing room. Rather than drive back to Clapham, because Elstree's right, obviously Elstree's right in North London. So I used to, rather than drive all the way, like two and a half hours drive, I used to um, sleep in my dressing room sometimes and get told off by security. But when you, like uh, like any actor, however seriously you're taking it, when you adopt the role of a character, you know that you are boundaried by the fact that it's a sort of a production. And I know there are some actors that go deep, you know, mm -hmm. like Daniel Day-Lewis or whatever, like, you know, messing themselves up, one um, understands. It has to be admired for that kind of depth. I, yeah. I, don't, I never possess that. But that's different from when you're, like, pushing that bloke's rifle away in one of my favourite Ross Kemp <laughs> moments. Going, you're not going to shoot me. You're not going to shoot me. Yeah, I do remember that moment really clear. That's a really weird moment because afterwards, I felt like um, being robbed. I've been burgled. After the event, and I calmed down and I realised what had gone to, because I'd also just taken a puff of one of the strongest marijuanas on the planet, New Guinea Gold, and also <laughs> been given some beetle nut. So I don't know how... What's beetle nut? Beetle nut. It's, um, it's kind of natural 
speed, isn't it? Really, it's oh. kind of a, it's um, adrenalizes you. It's like um, crystal meth, but natural. But you, you're buzzing, and you're yeah, a, yeah, a little bit buzzing. And yeah, it was more the people that you couldn't see in shot. On the there were a load of people with spears, and the story goes that those bunch of rascals—that's what they called those rascals. <laughs> you were rascals. Um, I, uh, had um, apparently um, taken some people hostage and apparently raped both the man and the woman. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Yeah. But um, we were led to believe that that was the situation before we met them, but I had no idea they were going to pull guns. And to this day, I don't know whether it was genuine, whether it was done as a threat, whether they were going to steal the camera, but we were miles from anywhere. We were in the mountains of Hagen. Papua New Guinea, I think, is the second biggest island on the planet, right, after Australia. Uh, and... Um, we were, there was no one that was going to help help you. Port Moresby is still one of the most violent places I've ever been to. And I think Medicine Sans Frontières send trauma packs that they send to actually war zones to PNG. It's a very, very dangerous place to be, PNG. <laughs> and that, that you feel somehow comfortable in that environment. You feel like you could, there's a persona or a state that you can get into. Yeah, but I t- after that particular incident, I did feel a bit like, I, you know, you go from feeling kind of violated to being angry about the situation you know i felt very angry about that after it happened whether because i didn't know i wasn't still not sure to this day whether it was done to test us whether it was done as a genuine attempt to take our cameras or whether they're going to hurt us and it was the guys with the spears that really scared me the guns i didn't think one of the guns was going to work i'm pretty sure the shotgun was going to work because they use a lot of shotguns there but it was the spears i didn't fancy a spear now, that's a rudimentary piece of technology, I'd imagine. That yes. can be operated yes, uh, yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah, and also it doesn't doesn't misfire, does it? And, no. and and you don't have to reload it. Oh, you handled that really well. That's exemplary. But you, like the, but you continually put yourself in these extreme situations. Do you ever have any uh, emotional fallout from it, from like being near that mm. level of poverty, suffering yeah, and conflict? 100%. What like and when? I, 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 and the young carers film that goes out tonight, I get emotional because I know that I couldn't do what they're doing. I, I couldn't, at their age, I couldn't have been that selfless to look after my family, a family member like they are. Mm. And that hits home. And when they're talking about it so honestly, I think that's, that's the most important thing is, is, the, is the honesty of people. Now, my mum was a hairdresser and my dad was a copper. And I think that's always worked well. So there's a slight of me, there's a slight of an interrogator about me, but there's also a good bit of a listener about me. I hope, mm. and I think that's one of the most important things to listen. And so yeah, I I do, uh, you know, we do a thing called trim trauma risk management at the end of the day, uh, particularly when we're doing extreme world and in Afghanistan, which we learn off off the commandos out in the four or five commando out in, in Afghan, which is where you basically what we should all do is instead of turning the TV on or going to look at our laptops, we sit down at the table and we talk. It's what we used to do around a fire, right? When we were out hunt gathering, we used to sit down by the fire and we'd talk through our day. And it's a very good way of stopping PTSD. Um, and so, yeah, I do get, I do take on board a lot of the stuff, particularly, you know, I remember going to Columbia once and just, it was done through a translator. But I sat for about two hours and listened to a mum talk about how her son had been cut while he was alive to try and find out where he had a stash of drugs. And the fact was they got the wrong kid. So they prolonged his death on purpose. They called chop houses where they chop people up. And they do it on purpose, particularly around Christmas, so people will never have a great Christmas ever again. Oh my God. Oh, it's stark, isn't it? Yeah. 
the dark world <laughs> it's, it's sad it's incredibly sad as well and you say even though we had a lot of road traffic collisions because you're often on roads that you don't know where people are sometimes under the influence of alcohol whatever and they're driving and you've got no control over that so even what you know whether it was being shot at or whether it was being threatened or whether it was just a hard interview we always sat down each night and you know, if we were in Islamic country, we'd have mint tea. We might, you know, if we were in a Western country, we might have a beer. But we'd, we'd sit down, and 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 each person would give their version of the day. And it's a great way of also, if you've got an issue with someone, when you're working in a very close, particularly tense area, that you don't harbour grudges, because you won't be there for that person maybe if they need you in was an it emergency. Was it structured the way you communicate? It's like everyone gets a turn and no one's allowed to interrupt. Is there a sort of a structure? Or? It was less organised than that, but that's how you pro that's how you do it properly. Mm. That's how you do trim properly. Um, but it was a little less structured than that. But, um, you know, I also, we, we were kind of, kind of, I don't know what the right word is, but, you know, I, I if we knew we were going to go and meet someone who was dangerous, who was potentially a threat, we would put it to the team. Um, uh, and if someone said no, I'm not happy with that. We wouldn't go, because I'd rather have. Uh, well, you have to be. You know, it's like like you do your jiu-jitsu, right? You've got to be committed to it. It's like if you want to take a tackle in rugby, you've got to be committed to it. If you're not committed to it, you're going to get hurt. Yeah. You got it's your second doubts in the back of your mind. Those doubts are going to come to the forefront in extremists. So you've got to be a hundred percent positive when you go into those kind of vulnerable positions, situations. So you, you developed a real camaraderie with the people that you were working. True with. love, man. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I and I will always hold them. You know, there's a special bond that happens if you're in a near near death experience, like you know, being in Afghan for, for for months. You do you 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 form a bond with people that is, I think, pretty unbreakable. Yeah, well, did, that's part of the attraction for it for me. You know, I suppose it's like you want to live close to reality. That it's a kind of this is truth when you're in that moment where there is. Where there is real consequence when you're experiencing people a, a previously concealed version of life mm. you know you're not yeah, well, also, but then you think about it, maybe i did that maybe i'm thinking about it now maybe you know 10 years at elstree going in and putting on that, that character and living it long i was i spent more time with my pretend family than my real family and after a while you know you could cloud the two you know um and i did have really strong affection to both Steve and Barbara, for instance. Um, you know, the guys that play my mother and my brother in the show. But that was not real. That was pretense. And maybe that's why I I wanted to do something that was completely the opposite of that. Yeah. like And the, the hinge was into things that kind of, in a sense, made sense. Ross Kemp and gangs. Oh, he's a gangster on the telly. Now he's real yeah, gangster. Absolutely. But as you're going deeper on this journey, like, there's a, like obviously there's this sort of... Uh, uh, Michael Palin with brass knuckles <laughs> element, but but now it's sort of getting like more and more into like sort of social, yeah. socially conscientious things. You, you saw, know, like the carers thing is not about oh my god, I don't want these child carers don't drag <laughs> a machete and nut me off. It's much more like oh my, this is awful and harrowing. Yeah, uh, and and I think you know it's because I've moved broadcasters from Sky to ITV, and they ITV want more home based stuff. Um, uh, but they still thank, thank the Lord. They gave me the um, the chance of making my own programs, of choosing subjects that I felt were felt were important. Um, you know, so homeless, homelessness, knife crime, young carers, and online gambling. But if you think two hundred eighty five people got stabbed last year, that's the highest amount since we started recording figures in nineteen forty six, right? 
if you look at the age group between 10 and 19 year old, three kids present themselves in casualty every day with, with knife wounds. The murder rate for 18 year olds has gone up 75% in the last two years. Bloody hell. That's wrong, isn't it? And that's right about that. What going on? I don't think I could solve knife crime, you know, in a sentence. I think there are lots of things. I think poverty plays a part. I think social media plays a part. How social I think, media, what people remind each other well, of? So basically, if you and I fall out over a girl, we were in a class back in Essex in the day, right? You and I would go down the bike sheds or we'd be told we'd be at the, you know, at the gates quarter to four, right? Yeah. And there might be a punch up. That. I used to run, buddy. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I remember being chased. Um, <laughs> Simon Rivet. Simon, um, how get you? <laughs> um, but um, but you, that would be sorted out, and it would be in, inside. Maybe the class would know, or any elements of that of that classroom would know. But because of social media now, you and I fall out, and I call you names then everybody knows that I've called you names. And then your peer group are now saying, Russell's called you names, Ross. You've got to sort this out. Otherwise, you're no longer part of our group. You're excluded from our group. So there's added pressure on someone that's very, very young, that's already maybe been excluded from education, is now in a pupil referral unit. And as one of the kids said in the Knife Crime film, he said, his words, not mine. You put a load of bad kids in a school with a load of bad kids, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. So there's that. I think so. I'm trying to think about the cause of knife crime. I think so. Social media does play an impact because everybody knows, and it adds the pressure on the kids to actually sort things out. Yeah. And as soon as you start to say, "I'm going to kill you," then that's happening. That is happening. Yeah. Um, so social media plays a part. Fashion. There's kids in Huddersfield that are not actually in the film. We can't use them because one of them's been involved in something. But he had a side holster for his machete in like a nice leather kind of thing. And then he pulled out this machete and it's got a serrated back and then like, you know, a Rambo tip on the end of it. And it's like, yeah, this is my kind of like latest Gucci, you know, machete. It's like, that's wrong. And who's selling those things? There's a lot of this is tied to economics in a way because mm. if you think that there's sort of many of the problems with social media is how those platforms are sort of used to in a sense enhance our roles as consumers which you know, feeds off of feelings of in inadequacy and insecurity mm. poverty scarcely needs to be unpacked and fashion as you just said I, I consider sometimes that we live education within... being a big one is that exclusion early exclusion from mainstream education i've been given second chances i was an i've been an absolute arsehole through parts of my life and i'm mm. i'm happy to admit that now because i've come to a position in my life where i can handle it but when i was younger i was a bit of a dick man till and, when oh lots of different times like till 20s 30s so, yeah i think you know you, you know understanding the repercussions of your own actions didn't really happen to me until I was in like mid thirties. Mm. And uh, even later, maybe in some respect in terms of personal relationships and what I said to people and what I really meant and what I didn't mean. So, you know, how can you put that kind of high responsibility on very, very young people at such an early age, particularly if you take them out of mainstream education and don't give them a chance and you don't give them any other options. So when you're like looking at these stories and focusing on individual stories, whether it's individual carers, like in your show tonight on ITV, or knife crime or online gambling, you you continually are able to see the connection between the stories you're telling of individual suffering or extreme and systemic failings. Yes. Yeah. 
and and basically sometimes downright lies i would suggest something that i never thought i'd say about country that i love i think that you know we're not so i think brexit has played a massive part in the last three years in terms of being a great enabler for politicians all over the place to to just kind of stuff stuff under the carpet and walk really? away from it yeah i think when you look at look at the news tonight it would be dominated Right, we're in a single issue country in yeah, a sense. Yeah, yeah. and, we're, and it, how, where have we got so far in three years? We're no closer and no further away, are we? In three years, we've just got nowhere, basically, I think. Yeah. Um, and and while that's been happening, while, while, while they've been debating our future, our future's happened, and it ain't great. Because one of the, where I, we, the, one of the things I feel around this subject about, which I know very little, is that I'm, I can, whether it's Trump or Brexit, whatever it is, I'm very interested in the emotions that lead to those kind of political ruptures. And you would be more experienced than me, Possibly given not. the depth of, and breadth of your work. But it seems to me like a lot of people are very, very, very unhappy and mm. have felt unheard and ignored mm. and repressed and, and that, lied and to And you know what happens while. at points like that, then people edge towards the extremes. Yeah. So I was in Austin just after Austin, Texas, which is the most liberal town in Texas. It's a university kind of, it's their Oxbridge for the state of Texas. And I went with a lot of guys called White Lives Matter to demonstrate because there's a movement called Black Lives Matter and that was formed basically because so many young black people were getting shot by police. Uh, and white lives obviously set themselves up to say, well, white lives matter just as much as black lives matter. But they demonstrated in the center of Austin, which is kind of sort of more left-leaning with lots of students. And of course, Antifa turned up, which is the anti-fascist movement, but they turned up with their four AK-47s. White Lives Matter already had three AR-15s with 200 rounds of ammunition. Then the state troopers turned up with all their guns. Then there were snipers on the roof, right? Texas being famous for snipers, yeah? So it, there were more guns there, I think, than I saw in Afghanistan. Uh, and do you know what? Not a fist was thrown. There were stones thrown, but not a fist was thrown. And um, but it was all as a result. It was the it was two days after Trump had come to power, and I suddenly felt. I think these people felt that that allowed them to actually show their more extreme side because of that that outcome. And I think that's still true. I think that's still true. This seems to be at least. The, the like the idea that Trump and Brexit mean that people with what might have been considered extreme or old-fashioned or unpopular views being more confident to express them. But um, my concern is that these emotions or feelings were present anyway, mm -hmm. and uh, and why are they there, and what are we going to do about them? There's sort of I suppose there's two a few millions of arguments, but one sort of idea is oh well this is just human nature. Human beings always find conflict with one another. It's in our nature to form hierarchies and to oppress people and Ooh. to create structures of dominance. But another argument is that we have created economic systems that enhance structures of dominance. Enhance. Then they go hand in hand. Like well, I suppose because an economics like that because the economic systems have to be resourced from human behaviour. But um, I suppose where what I feel like is when like talking about for example your most um, your most recent series, rough sleepers, young carers, knife crime, online gambling. I feel like I feel like it, we could get a fair idea of who the victims in each case are, and 
and probably in any one of those cases, we can point to institutional and systemic, not necessarily even just cor- not even corruption because it's stuff that's quite overt. For example, it's online overt. gambling. It's totally overt, and 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 you know, I think that addiction is treated differently to say other addictions and I don't think it should be. Yeah, go on. What did you learn about online gambling? Because obviously I'm well, banging to the addiction stuff. So I think it makes around 4.5 billion a year um, just online. Um, we, we, there's a really emotional scene in it where we speak to mothers and fathers of two young boys who, who commit suicide because of their addiction. Um, and you know it is aimed i think it, you know you've got to look at the way it's aimed it's aimed at certain females it's aimed at certain males they know when you go online and, and the thing is that you know a, a, a casino closes the races stop uh, betting shops close but mobile phone is with you all the time you know, and the guy talks about waiting for his wife just to get out of the room just so he can carry on gambling um so and look they are not breaking the law we are the biggest regulated online gamblers in the world. Britain. You, Britain. You wow. can't do it in other countries, like the way you can here. Really? Yeah. You're yeah, really bent over for And that. I met a lady that you know works in, in education, and she's up to her eyes in so many payday loans. You know, she's, she's, she didn't have enough money to buy a kid's birthday present. She had it in the morning, and she gambled it by lunchtime. Yeah, it's pretty much it's immersive, isn't it? Like every football team, like like you know, it's, it's, it's all everywhere. over. It's yeah. all over sport. Look, you, all of the commercial they're, breaks. They're business. They're a business. They're just you know, that's what they do. It's not, but there's people that sell alcohol, aren't they? You know, they're a business. Yeah, yeah. There's no form of human misery that won't be perpetuated if someone can see a way of wringing a pound note out of it. What what kind of um, regulation is there in place in gambling? There mate? is. There's lots of regulation. It's called we're the biggest regulated online. There are. Yeah, there are regulations. But it's pretty minimal, isn't it? And like the responsibility. It's, do you know what happened while we were making the film? Um, uh, because there had been a lobbying body from the, by these parents whose sons had sadly taken their own lives. They lost two sons. Yeah, I think I, it's difficult to work out how many people have actually died because of uh, of gambling. Because there's often other things that are, are mixed up in in that addiction. But um, what they've agreed to do, the big six have agreed, I think, to give one percent of their profits to help people with addiction which is is good news it's better than nothing it was 0.1 percent and it was voluntary wow wow when you said like when you're spending time in these extreme situations seeing the human face of statistics such as rough sleepers mm. and gambling and stuff d- does it make you feel uh politically charged does it make you feel that you that there needs to be sort of change on a wider level i i've sort of lost a lot of faith in it how come because of their behavior because of because Mm. of what's what's happened recently across the board uh in terms of british politics um and and this you know it just seems to be that people behave in a far more selfish way than they ever behaved in my in my 55 years i was 55 years last sunday i think or sunday before last happy uh, birthday looking thank good thank you uh, um yeah i think i think we've become a bit more selfish and i don't think that maybe i'll sound like i'm banging about social media and i'm sort i'm sitting I'm here talking on it um but um i think that's not helped i think it's a lot about send and it's a little less a lot more less about receive you know i talk about listening and you know you don't see anyone put up a, a selfie of them crying 
or being miserable or being in pain. It's always this fantastic image of me looking great, having a great time. Every day's a holiday. And not every day is going to be a holiday. My dad said to me, I never understood what he was on about when I was young. He said, so you keep trying to be happy all the time. You don't have to be happy. You just want to be content. Were you trying to be happy all the time? Yes. What would the outcome? I think it was. I think I bought into this idea that you had to be happy all the time. Was you, you like know? an ambitious? I'm going to make yeah, it. Yeah, 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 type yeah, of yeah, lad. yeah. And um, very competitive, and you know, definitely drank way too much and behaved like a bit of a wanker. Excuse my language. Um, what you like to fight and all of that? No, see that. You know, just go around. Just like I thought I was the dogs, and I wasn't. I was just full. I think I'm an idiot. And, and rude sometimes and arrogant and and all the things that I I, I dislike in other people now. Yeah. <laughs> that's what but that's your journey, isn't it? That's from. your journey. That's your journey. That's part of my journey. And, I, and you can't hide from that because other people saw it. Other people witnessed it. Like we're talking a bit about vulnerability and um, like when you said about when you when you were shooting in stressful and dangerous situations, the importance of being able to have that debrief. Mm. I belong to sort of like a 12 step type groups that are, in a sense, founded on social re uh, re relationships where instead of like pretending everything's OK, you tell people as honestly as you can, this is what I'm feeling. And that don't mm. like even for people that are drinking and taking drugs and they're in their early days and are really trying to get clean. Mm. But also people with like me with like 16 years still going, oh, I feel like this happened and I don't feel good enough. And I'm worried about like, whether I'm a good enough father and I'm worried about well, this in my marriage. and I'm worried about that. You know, like sort of it's allows it's the opposite of what you're talking about in the terms of a, a presenting a veneer of what you're supposed to be when in truth you feel distinct and separate from that. I feel like that's an important thing to have, mm. don't you? Totally. You, I, I think, you know, the more that you, you try to envelope something or, you know, scab it over, you're just making it worse for yourself. You've got to pick scab off and get it out. Do you have... Do you have the recourse to that kind of thing in your own life? You're going through, like, you know, you're going, putting yourself in all these extreme situations. Also, your father of how many kids? You've got four? Four kids. Like, like so, and I, I've got two, so I'm, I'm imagining that it's at least twice as hard <laughs> as that. Twins, twins on is the tough. Edge. Twins yeah, is, is tough, it? man. Twins is tough. And Nanny's just walked out as well. God bless her. She's, uh, she's found love and good luck to her. And she's a lovely lady. Um, and I wish her well, but we miss her. Abby, come back, come back. Don't use this as a, a plea to you. <laughs> it's it's an emotional plea. No, she's happy and she's in love and, and good luck. Um, if you've got our nanny, <laughs> all we ask is that you return her Sounds pathetic. safely very, to very us. Very middle class, doesn't it? I never that? mention anything like that, me. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm just going through like, like when I'm talking to people and I think, oh no, if you knew the level of support I have because like I've got a good job, like, you know, I don't have to, get smashed in the face by reality in the way that most people are being. Mm, no, I mean, I'm just as I say, I know I'm, I'm not really supposed to talk about it, I'm in Belmarsh at the moment. And for everybody, a day in that place is like a week somewhere else, it feels to me. You know, for the prison officers, for the inmates, for everyone who works in the charities, for the people that work in the, in the health ward, it's tough. And I have it, I have it. and inmates alike. Yeah, yeah, it's a pressure place and you know, you know, I'm I'm in there making a documentary. I can leave if I want to. You know, I can walk yeah. out anytime I want to. They've got to do it. That's their job. You know, or they're well, they're there because they're serving time. Um, and you know, I think that's always you know good sobra. That's a good thing about doing this is that the, doing this kind of work is that 
you know, I do come home and I kiss the tarmac sometimes. You know, yeah. I kiss the pebbles outside my house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kiss the kiss God. the pea shingle, <laughs> <laughs> which I never had outside my house in Essex either. Um, I didn't even know what pea shingle was. Um, so yeah, I, th I, I think that's also happened as I've got older that you begin to realise that how, you know how fortunate most of us are, particularly people in general. People live in this country are incredibly fortunate compared to other parts of the world. Yeah, and the pressures that you live under. Having said that, I've been, you know, I've been walking through favelas, and I've never, or you know, I was in the DRC. What's the DRC? Democratic Republic of Congo, and I did a story there um, about uh, intertribal violence. And you know, you'd be surprised. I, I, I'm still completely knocked out by how much tribal violence still plays a part in many parts of the world, and it's also heavily connected with, with, with you know, with, with juju, with, with black magic. Um, and how far that extends into so many different cultures. So I had no idea, for instance, I went to Kenya a lot, when I, a couple of times when I was younger, a lot, a couple of times, on safaris and stuff like that, and I didn't realise that actually in every shop there's a bit of juju to make you come in and buy something. Sometimes it's albino hair. I mean, we did a story about albinos being hacked up because they're considered to be so rich in terms of strong, in terms of their, their magical powers. Um, and in the, D in the DRC, we were doing a story about, mainly about Pansy Hospital. Dr. McQuaigay, this is an amazing man, he's just won the Nobel Peace Prize. But this was about six or seven years ago when most people didn't know who he was. And he was basically um, patching women up. Tribes, Hutus and Tutsis, that, you know, the, the ethnic violence that happened in Rwanda spilled over into the Eastern DRC. Um, and, and it, you know, it really is. I've been to lots of parts of Africa. It really is the hardest, darkest place I've been in Africa, the Congo. The really? Oh, yeah. They were hacking the girls' arms off. They were using rape as a weapon. They were abusing them, mainly and vaginally, with bayonet sticks. And then they'd gang rape them, and then they finished off. They'd insert a plastic bottle into their vaginas so that they'd explode when they became pregnant. Jesus and what Christ, he, mate. And what, and, and what he does is he, these women would make it, some of these girls without no hands, would make it to his hospital and he'd patch them up. And he was doing, you know, I thought a thousand fistula operations a year to save these women and, and being threatened every day by either Hutus or Tutsi rebels and by, and by government forces. True, a true saint, a true hero. Yes, yeah, humbling so man. if you're giving your life to that, bloody hell. Beyond, beyond, beyond my, you know, beyond my, I can just come wrap my head around it to begin with. What? Why did you go out there? You, you'd heard about him. You'd heard about that story, and also the amount of coltan and cassiterite that's that's illegally taken out of the country to fund the the the, the ethnic war, the, the the tribal war that's going on there. So coltan, I think you can only get in in the DRC, Australia, and Brazil, and it's in virtually everything. It's in every one of these. It's a it's a it's a mineral, and I think it helps to cool down all kind of PCs, phones, all that stuff. And it's illegally mined and sold on the black market. Um, and the money that's made from it goes to fund the war there. It was funding the war there. Like, say when you talk about a story like that, and I remember feeling the same way when I watched your program on Libya, that uh, it seemed it was such a, a, an immersion into suffering that it. I'm surprised it doesn't create a kind of... Uh, kind of cut off or almost like an odd apathy or something like you know I, I think there are parts of it that you do cut off and there are bits of it that i talk too much about and i think just talk i mean i just go on about it to people and randomly i like, spout off about stuff and people look at me, look at me like he's nuts but i think that helps me that's my way of dealing with it 
Um, I couldn't be a doctor, man. I mean, you think about, I'm moaning about my life here. You know, you think about, I say, you think about some of the things that are right happening right now in this country. There's someone hacking someone out of a car who's just been in a you know, car accident. You know, there's someone telling someone they've got a week to live. Mm. There's someone do, and they do that every day. And they do it often without very much thanks. So I think I should be very careful when I start, woe is, woe is me-ing, you know. Yeah, so well, that's part of it, is it? Is part of it, all right, is that you're drawn to these extremes because it gives you a different perspective. I mean, because like any one of the things that we've talked about in a sense today could be lifelong endeavours, lifelong pursuits on, right, what are we going to learn everything about gambling? We're going to learn everything about these tr tribal wars in the Congo. We're going to learn, like, this, it's such kind of, uh, rich, desperate, extreme and intense material. So I suppose in a way what you're doing is bringing attention to as many of these topics as you can because of a personal fascination primarily but also because of yeah, care. It's sort of selfish in some respects, I think it is, yeah. I think it's sort of selfish that I feel like I can, I'm the one that's going to do it. I, there's a little element of that, I guess. But ultimately, you know, I get parachuted in and I get jumped out and I'm not in people's lives for very long. I'm not, now, I've always said the most important thing was that, you know, no film was ever worth someone's life. And, and a couple of times, we, for instance, when we were in Peru, we were, we were looking at the effect of the cocaine trade on the environment. And one of the guys that helped us get to an illegal lab, um, I, he was compromised by the local uh, gang and we had to get him out of there. Um, and thank God those moments have happened very rarely. Um, but no film's ever been worth someone's life, I know that. And I hope that what you do, I guess, is, is that even though you're only parachuting into these people's lives, you don't affect them adversely afterwards. So you've got to be very careful about your duty of care, particularly when you're working, you know, with, with young carers, for instance. You know, you've got to be careful. You say, yeah. you go to people's lives, you're exposing them, you're showing how hard they are. Um, a lot of young carers are bullied at school. A lot of them don't do as well as they could do educationally because the amount of time they're looking after someone. We reckon it's around about one in five kids now. It used to be one in 20. It's now one in five kids in England perform some kind of caring role in the home and about 32% of them are doing critical caring. It's a lot, it's a big responsibility, isn't it? And you're doing it out of love. You're not doing it because you're paid. We yeah. reckon that young carers, we, we, we got um, uh, assistant professor at Leeds University to look at how much money they thought young carers actually saved the UK. And we, we think it's around 2.5 billion pounds. Because of the, the labor. Mm. Tell us about some of them then, like the stories from uh, the sh your show and uh, yeah. what was the, what really got me was just how young some of them are. So the average age is twelve, but some of them are as young as four. We've got a five-year-old in our, in our film, a little lad called Ali. Uh, he looks after, helps look after his sister with his mum. But then you've got Lizzie, who I live the house, and you know, there's true poverty there. I mean, you know, there are no carpets. They did, they, I mean, I had a very nice clean bed, thank you very much, but, you know, they are living in poverty. And, and mum is not very well at all, dad's not well, S brother has mental health issues, um, and Lizzie is looking after all of them, holding them all together just. And, you know, you see the film. I, I, I was quite, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I was just shocked by it. I was shocked by the poverty that I, I witnessed. And it's not the first time I've seen it while making films in the UK. And I think, yeah, 
I'm as guilty as anybody else, particularly for the homeless one. I, I often, I walk out of the tube station at Holborn and I walk down the Kingsway towards the Aldwych. And I'm like, I'm in my mobile phone, I'm late for, for a meeting, I've just got a text from PR company, I've just got to do this, I've just got to do that. And I walk past every homeless person on that on the Kingsway and not even give a look at them. And now, just because I experienced it for one night only, um, I've totally changed my perception. It's totally changed my perception. And when I, you know, they say we're all three misfortunes away from ending up on the street, maybe it's only two, I don't know, maybe it's just one. Um, but it's a growing issue in the country and the fact that, 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 that local councils are now doing snapshots where they just go out on one night and if they don't see any homeless people, rough sleepers, sorry, they don't count, they count that as a zero for the year. There's mm. no way that you're gonna solve an issue that's not even managing an issue. No, it doesn't seem uh, like this. It seems beyond the scope of the kind of uh, I don't know this the kind of care that is being offered. It don't seem like there's a genuine intention or ability to really remedy. No, and and, and also charities are playing a bigger and bigger part in, in 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 coming up with solutions or being asked to come up with solutions. So we're going back to this kind of Victoriana age of you know good goodwill people looking after unfortunate people when you know. We pay taxes for a reason, and they sh and that and some of that money should be going t to solving these these issues and or helping people who need help. This seems like like a real breakdown in social cohesion. Like when I sort of think about this, I mean, when you like, when we talk about other continents, there's always that veil of otherness. I feel like okay, well, bloody That's hell, I'm in England, you know. But when you talk about here, I, it makes me feel like these are the harbingers of the apocalypse. That in the that there's a a rough sleeper crisis that there are children looking up you know that that me as a person that lives in privilege i'm floating along on the top of so Same much here. suffering and what's I, gonna... said, I said in the in the homeless film when when uh, nathan goes off and he injects carrot crack and heroin into his hole in his groin and and he does it between two cars on a friday afternoon at half past four in Cardiff and like on a main street and his dad's just driven from Bridge End to give him the drugs. Presently he's clean, I hope he's still he's, he's remaining to be all right, you know. But um I just said there's a parallel universe going on here. Yeah. And I'm just not and I just I kinda of like scratched it. And I went, Wow, you know, like, like you know, you feel like you're going through some kind of like hole and looking into it and then closing it off. And and what I saw was, you know, I think I'm so guilty of even if I do see it, and even if it does come to me, even if I sniff it, I, I move my nose away. When I was a drug addict, I was bracketed by the kind of love and care of like people that I was working with. I'm like I've always been lucky enough to have some family, you know, that can take care of me. Um, but I remember being in central London and uh, scoring crack and heroin that I was addicted to then and being aware of a parallel world like of kids zipping up and down on BMXs with little gear in their cheeks and uh, in it, like a West Indian, East London, Hackney housewives serving up on Oxford Street. It's like, oh my God, there's this separate yeah, world well, well, among yeah, I mean, us. And it's just interesting, like the When you start looking for it, you see it. If you're not looking for it. So oh, where were we doing? Where were we shooting? Are we doing knife crime? But it was like so many deals. When you start looking for knives, you start noticing loads of gear being handed. Like people coming up and like doing handovers and stuff like that because you start looking for it. But if you're not looking for it, there's a, there's a, that world is just there. But it, you're not. It's not in your 
and your focus, so you just don't see it. Like and sometimes you, s- you choose not to, and I've been guilty of that. I think we all have, because I think, you know, even choosing, like I was aware of my language just then, they move among us as if there is an us and them, as if the people that are using drugs and s- selling drugs are somehow discreet from you and I really like it's this ability for, for for us to enter into a kind of hypnosis of I exist on this plane and this strata and homelessness isn't my issue and that's not my issue and I feel like that if we are living under the umbrella of a thing called a nation then that nation should mean something we, we need public services we need social cohesion we need support for the vulnerable otherwise what is a nation a flag and a world cup although I know that world cup gets you I'm thinking Many of us will <laughs> retain the image of the, my abiding memory of the last World Cup is your yeah, celebration yeah, 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 of, the, of uh, uh, Eric my, Dyer's goal. My, my wife, my wife. Uh, that was amazing. I have a safety catch on my social media called Cara, but at that <laughs> at that point, I think she was in labour, so she wasn't around, <laughs> and so I'd normally tweet that, and she'd go, nah. No, no, no. Well, that's not good. that was. It was lovely. I mean, it was a hysterical and mad, mad cultural Wasn't moment. And, and also, uh, coming together again. Do you know what I mean? It felt that you know, I'm not mad about teams individually, like the football teams. You know, but I, I, I when England play football. I do go for some kind of change. <laughs> and also in the it. Cricket World Cup, I'm not a great cricket fan, but when it got close to the end of that, I suddenly, you know, I was you know, feeling every run, you know. You know I, I do get emotionally attached to it, and I think it's a good release. And I think it, it's, it's also, as I say again, it was a great moment to bring people together. Nationalism is, you know, the fusion of those kind of natural tribal feelings that... Is nationalism a bad word? Is nationalism... No, I don't think... Well, if, if nationalism is a bad word, then nation is a bad word. You know, like, and, and so we have to look at, well, why do we need countries? Is it beneficial to have countries anymore? It's only a 500 year or older in our case, but it's a relatively modern idea. There's no reason why there should be a centralised authority. There's no reason that there should be a, a political arm to the transnational corporations so that they can keep us all in dumb commodified consumerist roles you know there's no reason for it but like during like the you know the moments those moments of sort of I don't know surging of national goodwill like I remember like watching videos of people and it was a bit silly really like sort of dancing about in an Ikea and stuff (laughs) and thinking this is amazing a festival has descended and I suppose the point of a festival is like the idea that temporarily we can we all live under this sort of like uh, the shackles of oh god God, everything's grim, more problems, more tragedy, more death, more than I can handle. I'm just going to have to turn a blind eye. And then something like that happens, like the World Cup victory. And we feel like, no, it's going to be all right yeah, <laughs> before, yeah. the, before we're it engulfed back again. back in again and you wake up with them, yeah, the next, next day. But, you know, I'm, uh, I can't, I'm not going to hide from that. That was a, that was a good day. And I, and, I, and I enjoyed myself that Well, night. clearly it tapped into something. And I, and I, and I feel like that... Like it's in a sense, there's a symbiosis between these two worlds. Whether or not, if we're discussing the extreme world of suffering that many of your documentaries have focused on, or cultural phenomena that seems more benign and populist, such as the success of a World Cup, that there is, there's always got to be some kind of underlying phenomena. That's what interests me, Ross. When I look at your work, I feel like, why is this man? always in putting himself in these fucking terrible situations like well you know what what is this about why is it never ross kemp on yachts <sighs> why not ross mate? Kemp why on massage? It? no one would commission it <laughs> you know ross kemp on massage I, I just did do you know what and I'm not, I'm not using it i just did a tui commercial online for three minutes and i 
and I thought, oh God, you know what? This is going to undermine the brand. This is going to make me, you know, not be taken seriously. No, oh, people don't take me seriously anyway. You know, a lot of documentaries out there think that I'm a joke because, you know, I used to be a soap actor. How dare he be making programs in our, you know, in our genre? That's snobbery. Yes, it is. It yeah. is. Yeah. Which I don't know, you must have accounted. <laughs> no, it's never come up with me. <laughs> Everyone's just gone, you've got every right to talk about politics in whatever accent you, you choose. <laughs> you get stuck in. Yeah. Well, this is a democracy I after all. all. So I went off and I did a, you know, I had to be miserable for four days. And then on the last day, oh, I had to have a smile on my face because I got a massage and I had nice food and was on a nice boat. There you go. I said, mm. I've done it and it's done now. Mm. Um, what was that? What was it? It was yeah. just a Tui commercial for a cruise line, you know, and and why not? And I I thought I was I'm in an R and about it. And I was was like, that what they call mad? it? Ross Kemp on cruises? No, uh, Ross Kemp on gangways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's pretty funny. Yeah, wasn't my idea. <laughs> well, I can't claim credit for it. But um, you know, going back to to what you say, do do I put myself necessarily in dangerous positions? Uh, no, they come up because of the environment that you're putting yourself into and you've got to be prepared for that. But, um, you know, in these last four films, I don't think it was particularly dangerous. It was uncomfortable to see what I was turning my eye, eyes away from or I was just un blindly unaware of. A bit of both. You know, A, I'm not looking for it and B, I don't want to look for it. And, and it's an uncomfortable truth, as it were. Uh, that's been used before. Um, yeah, particularly the young carers got me a lot more, I think maybe because I've got kids now. Um, and to see them, you know, basically sacrificing their childhoods, as we say, for the love love of, of their families. What's it like so when get, you... get a bit emotional. Yeah, no, how can you not? How can you not? You're experiencing really intense things, I imagine. I... Um, me, I don't like. I would love to do more of the kind of work you do that brings attention to such important issues. Occasionally, almost just to make sure that I don't go mental. I occasionally do things for other people. I mean, I try not to do it often, but like uh, <laughs> I went to a homeless shelter on Skid Row, and like the but being, you're good like that, man. I, I, I did, a lot of people do that. Not a lot of people would do that. Well, thanks. Like, like, but while when you're the thing about seeing children suffering is it it prevents me or perhaps anyone from saying oh well people that are homeless they must have made choices they must be inferior or somehow different you know that's that even if it's not as um articulated as that we the very fact that we because the very fact we accept it is an indicator that we think it's okay for it to happen yeah. otherwise we'd be oh my god this has got to end yeah, exactly, right now yeah, exactly and I suppose when it's children, you can't even use that mental device of this should be happening. And seeing children with nowhere to live, like that, I just over the, the short few times that I hung out there, it made me think, oh, well, what, what, you know, what is America then? What is England then? If it can incorporate this, if it can conceal this, then, you know, like it... it like to go around to be around Skid Row and to see like a nation of tents and homelessness and then to be in Beverly Hills and to see such opulence and privilege and to God to feel not feel particularly at home in either environment it it's very very jarring and it I think starts to like the particularly the the, the depth and um, variety of work that you've done now it must seem like very difficult to imagine that there is a cohesive thing called britain that we're all working for we're all paying tax for you know but if 
contained within it, there are such unaddressed extremes. I, st- I still think, honestly, I still think though, you know, in comparison to other thing, other places, it is still pretty organised. It right. is still pretty lawful. Um, people do have a sense of identity, but there are clearly things that have gone wrong, and I think they've and 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 I think you know they're snowballing. And, and I think that was the spur to make to, to make these films. You know, you can't have that many people dying with, with knives. That's the highest since we started counting, since the end of the Second World War. So why is that? And, and what is being done? But we still have, you know, I think also think that what's changed is there was a civil service that existed. And those chaps, you know, the, the yes ministers of the world, those yeah. chaps went to certain universities and they left those certain universities and they went into certain departments in Whitehall and they did their jobs and they made sure that the wood came out of the taps and the light came out uh, of the lights and, and those things happened. The roads ran and the lights went, you know, green, amber, red and things happened and they sorted things out. And I think this kind of like, and I'm sound, sound non-political, but this kind of privatisation and sort of greed, get, get rich quick kind of mentality that spread through through all classes sort of stopped a lot of those guys from leaving universities and girls leaving universities and going into those roles and going into the private sector you know going into to get rich and get uh, you know and historically they may have gone into other jobs I'm not saying that's I have proof of that but it sort of feels a bit like that to me yeah it's almost like the you know you're not to be a prime minister is not the same thing as it was I think 20 years ago uh, you know to be the head of Google is to mm. be you know be the man that came up with Uber that's clever do you yeah. know, so, or the person that came up with with Uber, th- th- we sort of like we've sort of changed the goals slightly, and and surely the most important thing is to to have a, a society that that runs properly that is um that is um what's the word, is accountable. Oh, yeah. Feels like the national project has been stripped of much of its sort of purpose in terms of taking care of people it seems and to be alright to lie it seems to be alright to tell a falsehood and get away with it what did you like I feel like the, the Grenfell somehow illustrated this problem it was like a, an incredible symbol of that that one of my friends said that as it was being more and more investigated, they realised that there was no one in positions of responsibility. It was like, you know, like the, the like the veneers Veneer. that were flammable. Mm. There were veneers everywhere that there's no one that's like, oh, right, sorry about that. I'm responsible for this. I made this decision. I you know, like it's something that's very difficult to pin down. But precisely because there are no... There are no structures. There is no care. We're like the, you know, the un- human beings are human beings, and human beings. I, my general optimistic belief is that human beings are beautiful. But something like Grenfell or many of the topics that you are illuminating demonstrate that it is no longer a priority to take care of vulnerable people. It's a priority to present a facade of nation in order that a large number of people can be controlled by a small number of people, and that money can be filtered upwards and outwards. That's what I'm beginning to feel. I'm feeling it too. <laughs> it makes no, me go a bit I, buccaneer, I, Ross. I, makes I, me go I a bit that, like, right, I let's got do that. this. I, I know, but um, I don't know how you'd, you you really, really expose that. I don't know how you'd, you'd be able to, to back it up. Um, but I, feel, I have that feeling. Populist that. rhetoric. <laughs> That's what it is then. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. how I'd go for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, I got stuck into that politics, didn't I, for a little while, and it didn't end well. I mean, 
it's like it's a tricky game to get into but like um it's curious to watch what's happening as you see more and more the type of people that are getting into a p positions of authority and the way that the conversation is changing and the way that power is being warped. the populist kind yeah. of approach i see that steve bannon you know trump's advisor once talking at the oxford union go on, go on, yeah, go on, well yeah. he's pretty i mean he's a, an interesting character shall we say but like uh, like he's when he talk he, the way that he illustrated the decline under obama to present day as a result of the financial collapse its financial uh, consequences for ordinary americans and and ordinary people around the world he created a, you know, an excellent argument that sort of underwrote the rise of populism and he himself said and he has this sort of air of incredible pragmatism and even though like what he is mostly known for is going around the world supporting and setting up right-wing projects and you know like in Hungary and Italy and all over the gaff no shortage of those there no and like but he, well, one thing he said is you know there is no question that the, the next the next political movements are going to be populist all we're talking about is whether it's right-wing or left-wing mm. and he sort of seemed to be sort of incredibly like almost not ambivalent because obviously he's on the side of the right wing but like it was curious to me that populism in a sense is well i think that you are a populist in the sense of you're doing on itv talking about knife crime online gambling talking about like sort of inequality or like there's no, none of these issues don't sooner or later lead to corruption exploitation institutionalized inequality etc mm. i mean that's where it all leads to and i because of my belief in human beings, I feel that if enough people understand the unfairness, that they'll be less likely to say, the problem over here is there's too many migrants or too many Muslims or too many of this, and instead feel like, hold on a minute, we need to organise differently. Well, the more you understand, the more, more your position, you may adjust it slightly. You know, I think I'm documentaries for white van men, I guess. That's, what yeah. the, that's, the, that's the label, Good. and I don't mind that. Um, you know, um, I think the, to create awareness is to create understanding. And if you can create a bit of understanding, if you can change someone's position, and a lot of it is institutionalized, like racism, for instance. It's, it's like Prince Harry said the other day, it's handed down through families of people who've never really, not really ever really understood it or never come into contact with people from with different color skin or different, different ethnicities. And if you can prompt something inside them that makes them questions that question their views, not because you're no better than them, you better than I know better than you, but just say, look, this is how they live. This is what they do. This is how they, this is how they exist. That's their position. So understand their position. And then if you have understand that understanding of their position, then you might change your position or, yeah. or your understanding of, of what you, what you see and what you feel. It's very easy to, well, no, very easy, but it seems kind of uh, common to adopt a position of condemning people for being different until you meet them or understand mm. the common humanity and our ways of categorizing each other based on nation race religion are in a sense they're very lumpen and clumsy ways of understanding the nuance and complexity of human beings and like over one of the things I've come to understand is that I could have more in common with like someone from a completely different culture because of some uh, not so easily read essential 
resonance as opposed to oh we both did this and did that and did mm. that you know what I mean it's sort of like it's not as simple as that and I think it, it seems to me that we're living in a climate I think where polarization is encouraged where uh, conflict is encouraged where the amount of information that's available is causing people to become more and more insular and separate um, but anything that helps to shift the focus to what we have in common and what we share. I think it'll be difficult for anyone to watch a, a show on young carers and not feel like, here she comes, it's Cara, she's stepping in, she thinks you're about to do a World Cup broadcast. <laughs> you have no idea how much this podcast means to me! Everything! <laughs> um, well, I, I can't remember what I was saying now, man, because I got into my impression. No, no, but I think... I think what we're saying is is that that, that polarization oh, yeah. is not is allowing people again to be a bit more selfish, isn't it? And and uh, and and I'm as guilty probably as anybody else of, of, of falling into that trap. And it's all right for you, Ross, because you know you've had a really nice career in EastEnders, and now you're going off making your documentaries, parachuting into people's lives, and then and then you know jogging on. Um, um, but I do, I do, I do see that, and I do feel that, and I, and I obviously, you know, as a dad, and, and as a dad, I worry about about the future for my children and, and what kind of world they're going to inherit in, in every in every way, in shape and form. It's political, it's political future, it's environmental future. Um, you know, you've got oh, you've just got leaders of countries that don't seem to be too scared. I mean, maybe it was always so, and maybe we've just been through like thirty years of, of, of relative peace, um, but. They don't seem to be too scared of, of forming alliances just to hack off another another nation. You know whether that nation is is truly a nation or not. It doesn't matter. It's still got the capacity to just to end end this thing. And I'm all, I'm always I mean I know nothing about it, but you know you look at the length of this table and you say we've only been on it like less than the width of my fingernail. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know how you know how quickly could we be gone? And what, and what a waste oh what this is why waste. I've become a religious nutter is because <laughs> <laughs> because uh, the material because like just then as you have just dem like you know using a very uh, a lovely analogy which someone only shared with me for the first time a couple of days ago of like that how short a time we've been here and yet beingness itself has been around a lot longer uh, and I feel that because our systems are failing so radically we have to individually and socially access aspects of ourselves that currently we're not using I don't mean in a kind of magical mystical way I mean to start to prioritize kindness compassion uh, over self-interest and greed and I don't think that there's a bias a natural bias in human beings to be selfish and greedy I think there's a cultural bias to being selfish and greedy and like something like social media you're bombarded you're bombarded yeah. It. It's an observable amplification. Like I think those trends always. Get, and what I would say is that that the social media space was a new territory. That new territory was conquered, as always, by corporate interests. Those corporate interests require us to be selfish and greedy and fearful. So they became selfish, greedy, and fearful places. That's my sort of intuitive understanding. And I think that the only way we can usurp, challenge, and change that is by both individually and socially beginning to nurture different aspects of ourselves, which is not it's not woo woo and neither is it new new because it talks <laughs> about that in the Bible, in the Quran, uh, every it, it's religious just, book, yeah. Yeah, discover love within yourself. There's a few things I wanted to get into actually. What about I think a lot about maleness around you. You're sort of an icon of maleness and like uh the over Mac machismo when I first saw you uh, 
punching people <laughs> in, in a in a, in a sort congratulations of to you, sir, on your blue, blue belt. belt. Thank yeah. you, sir. Thank no, you. I'm no. most honoured. That's a massive achievement, mate. Thank you. A long you. way off for Mr. Kemp. I feel like I'm very injured. Uh, since, since then, I've known nothing but injury and <laughs> really? suffering. Yeah, they say that, that when you get a blue belt, everything gets sort of tough for you. And everything did get tough for me. I hurt this knuckle quite badly. I've hurt my knee a bit. Do you bit. think it's because you've achieved a goal? Because you're not, you know, I mean, you're not on, you're not black belt yet, are you? Whatever no, it is, or, or, some, or coral some margin. belt. Yeah. So do you think that's because you kind of relaxed on it? I don't. Well, maybe it might have been relaxed because a lot of the people that I talk to that are brilliant, like you know, sort of black belts mm. and sort of masters of the sport, they all talk about. You know, the key thing is to become relaxed. And <laughs> yeah, that's easy. That is yeah, when you're it? good when at it. Yeah, yeah. Not now. Yeah, also when you've got someone trying to throttle you or break your arm. Yeah, relax. I'm relaxed. Yeah, I'm relaxing. I'm relaxing. No, I'm not. I'm, I know it's never going to be a sport I'm going to really excel in, but I do like it. I'm going tomorrow morning, actually. Oh, yeah, with yeah, Chris, Chris. Yeah. With the great Chris Clear. Yeah. And um, what about, and um, props to Paul Busby, because we've got to mention more yeah, like, absolutely, uh, man. all of these yeah, masters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, what about uh, maleness Sorry, and I masculinity? Off. Like, because uh, like you've sort of entered public consciousness as a archetypal working class male. male. Yeah, and but really, I went three years to drama school and learned how to tap dance, which I love doing. I wasn't very good. I love, but I love my dance, modern jazz, um, dancing. You know, I love dancing. Um, and what about in extras? Yeah, well, that was like two days' work, but I've lived with it. It's lived with it. It's followed me around. It's amazing. It shows that you have a sort of a, and also like a, you know, when you appear in front of large groups of people, you're very iconic and recognisable, aren't you? So people, <laughs> you live in the countryside, so you may not know, but like you know, sort of like people yeah. like are very much like hold you up as a particular type of example. That's why I think is actually very like I, I, I applaud and am excited by what you do because precisely because I think that. If you were just doing shows about cars or whatever, I don't know there's anything wrong with that, that, mm. you know, people wouldn't be learning about young carers, online gambling, the complexities of yeah, breakdowns. Honestly, of I'd like, like to video. say that I have some kind of inner burning, you know, I, I'm, on, I'm on some campaign. It, it, it's, it's not real. If it's that, I'm not aware of it. It's just an honest curiosity about that. I want to find out about that. Or I look at if someone says that the stat is it's that many. I'm like, it can't be. <laughs> and the idea is to go and live it was called living with because I just wanted to live just a bit I mean that, that is actually quite an honour for someone to allow you into their house that's yeah. a privilege particularly if they're in hard times to expose that to you and I think I think people trust me now I think people do trust me and, and I hope I've never ever you know abused that trust yeah that's brilliant that is true. it makes you feel good as well to be honest with you yeah, yeah, yeah. It plugs you into something a bit more worthwhile. So you're kind of... But it's not, honestly, I'm not, I'm on no, am I, am I on any kind of social campaign? I'm definitely not. If I am, I'm not aware of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I enjoy the experience. I don't sometimes, I honestly, when I was in that house with Lizzie, I literally had to get out for five minutes. I've never said this to anyone, but it's true. I just went and sat in the van outside. I just couldn't handle the white noise inside the house of... of all the people, the people, the family, the family. I was only there for 48 hours, mate, and it got to me. Yeah. I've done a few little immersive things when I was a lot younger. I weren't very good at immersing myself. I was continually, I think, <laughs> I've done, like, here's some things I've done badly. Trained with the, um, who's the version of, like, the, yeah, the Marines in uh, America, like in. US Marine Corps. Oh, man. I spent some time out in Afghanistan, yeah. <laughs> 
well, I went to their training camp and I had to go and have a sit down. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, they didn't like me. They didn't like us. They oh, threw why? rocks at us at night. Um, they refu- They they kept well, this particular bunch. I'm not saying I'm not going to not. I'm not going to knock. Uh, what they call they called the the brave and the few, aren't they? The Marines. Yeah, the brave and the few. And they've got a bigger military than our entire Air Force. They've got more planes no than our Air Force and our Navy combined. They've got more ships than our Navy. I mean, the brave and the few, the, the brave and the many. Right. Um, Why did they throw rocks at you and your... Like- oh, mate, it was just a one. They didn't want us there. I think they just... they, they, they had, It was um, Fob Malit in Musakala. And I'd been in Musakala the year before with five Scots and one Royal Irish. And it was a very different experience. They didn't want us there. Uh, they were they had John bags and they refused to use them. They preferred to get DMV, diarrhea and vomiting. So John bags basically were invented by the Americans. You kind of put it over there instead of shitting into a an oil drum and setting fire to it. You put it in the bag over there. You shit into the bag. It seals up. It's got something that eats the poo and the wee, or you throw it onto a fire. It's very simple. You don't your hands don't have to touch your ass at all, basically, apart from when you wipe your bum. Yeah, and um, it's a good... I'll give mine a going over <laughs> a couple of times an hour <laughs> but you know what basically it's a good way of not getting infected I mean I have been in, in a, I've been in like you know 43, 44 degree heat when everybody is spewing and got diarrhoea and oh. I remember I remember this so clearly I was like out of it and it took more people to the battlefield than anything else and um, this was in Musakala but the year before when I was in Scotland, it went for it I mean I can remember the officer in command I remember seeing him with his top off and I couldn't work out which way he was facing. He was turned away from me because his ribs sticked out both ways. Um, and um, and I went to the, the toilet with my redhead torch on so I didn't get shot at, supposedly. So they can't see red at night, apparently. And um, I remember looking down at this soup beneath me and a f- I was so weak, a fly flew up between my legs and landed on my lip. And it had been eating the below oh. me just before four minutes before, oh. before. And I was like, I can't let it fly off my lip. Oh, no. I can't let it fly off my lip. I can't let it fly off my lip. <laughs> These and are the be, low times. Mate, yeah. And, and, and then there were the moments of massive re- release when you got home and I went bonkers for four days, you know, and behaved like a complete tosser. What do you, oh, what do you mean lose it with people that you... No, I just, go, I just go into drunken stupor for four days. and Just then drink and, anymore? Still do it badly. Sometimes, sometimes I drink too much. Do and I wish I didn't. During really. World Cups. Yes, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. I did. That was a perfect example of making a twit of yourself. There you go. You yeah. know, good stories no fool, when you're a granddad. No fool like an old fool. Well, I feel like you'll have you've got proper war stories. It is like you know you are like an old school foreign <laughs> correspondent, you're like a populist foreign correspondent. Who's the who's the famous the famous dude that everyone used to John Pilger? I mean, you're I'm like not, the I'm working the same, man's John Pilger. I'm not in the same school as him, sadly. Like, he's, he's, getting... he's, a, he's a true hero, mate. Yeah. Um, I, I, do you know what? I have got lots of war stories, and there was a, it was became quite addictive for a period of time going out to Afghan. I used to look forward to it. So I don't know what that said about my home life at the time. But, um, yeah, I used to look forward to getting on the M40 and getting into Freddie Lake, a tri-star, and flying into Kandahar, getting on a C-130, landing in Bastion, getting on a Chinook and landing in a FOB. And literally, I could be in Battersea 0700, and I could be in Afghanistan by 0700, sleep the night in Bastion, fly the next day. So within 48 hours, I could be in a full-blown in, full in, a full blown firefight. Zip bullets zipping past your head and RPGs going off and that was weird I suppose that's the other thing that must be they got, used to, they got used to us and they got to trust us and knew that we weren't going to do stupid things so they, they allowed us if there was a window to go straight out there 
But it was, that was sometimes hard to bend your, your head around. Is that one of the, what are the most, uh, like, as we wrap this up, I'd like to ask some questions that children would ask. Mm-hmm. What's no, the, like most that. that's, that's the most scary They're the bit. most honest generally, aren't they? Yeah, so I suppose so. Certainly the most insulting from my children. <laughs> um, what, what about the, um, what are the, um, what's the most scared, most scared you've been? Often happens after the event. I, 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 you know, you don't realise how close it is until sometimes I'm looking back at it, you know, f- f- running it through the camera. Um, the most scared. Oh, I think, I think there's a number of things. I've been to some prisons. I don't think there was a prison in, in, um, in Venezuela that was quite scary. Um, I think being shot at is often the most scary. I was on a roof in Pakistan. The bullet went between me and the cameraman closer than I am to you. It went between us. Um, Afghan, I suppose, on a, on a, you know, after a while, you got a bit blurred to it, but it was truly terrifying. People died, and 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 seeing kids die, I can get really injured. Kids injured, yeah. that's that's that had the most effect on me. Bloody hell! What about uh, what's? Did been you want the answer? Natural. I should have said in the kitchen with my wife. So I scared. Uh, <laughs> Frank Butcher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Piggy. <laughs> and what about um? What about? Uh, moments of uh, sadness that well that was I, I, I think the most sad I've ever felt was when I interviewed a man called Mr Khan who was a sex trafficker uh, uh, in the Sundarbans in India and he told me that he had when it come on top for him he killed the girls and he, he I think he said he'd killed 250 300 girls he wasn't quite sure and he started crying and I went from feeling incredibly sad to feeling incredibly angry. And I can't hide my emotions. I'm not that kind of journalist. I'm not, a, if I am a journalist, whatever I am, I can't hide that. And, 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 and that really, I mean, I remember the translator, just tears rolling. She was a criminologist and the tears rolling down her face as he was talking to us. And in no way was he lying yeah. about what he'd done and how he did it. And was continued to, continuing to to do it, and I was powerless to stop any of that. Fucking hell, that's a bit too much reality. <laughs> Has I'm been, laugh a minute. What about heartening moments where you felt like, oh, this is. Dobber Quaige, a guy. So I've sort of already said him. Um, there are so look across the board, Russell. There is so much good out there, right? It's just that I concentrate or look at, at, at a lot of the bad um, but there's always good in, inside the films in some way shape or form I always like to, to, to shine light on the hope and also on, the majority is good most people around this world trust me whether they're in Haiti which I was in and that was desperately sad I mean that was disgusting what happened there so all the promises of aid that were made and, and it never turned up. All the money that was promised never turned up. And the reason that most of the houses collapsed was they made cement with stones. The the the, um, the gravel that was supposed to, be supposed to come from sand pits, so it it locks to the concrete. And so it, they used cheap pebbles out of out of out of rivers that were smooth. So when it rocked, mm. all the buildings flat packed. Um, and again, that's just you know someone making money yeah. at the expense of uh, thousands of lives. Um, um, what was the question? Happy? Uh, uh, what, what was I was trying to say? I lost my thread, man. He was talking about like uh, times when he felt optimistic and happy about yeah, it, yeah, and you stepped up. I said that going, being in, on a cholera, being in, you know, the, the, the weird things happen. Like, was it that, that trip, fly? <laughs> 
but you know they end up being going out with the body collectors you know because the epidemic of cholera happened because um one of the united nations forces that were sent out there dropped their portaloo into the water table and that caused an outbreak of cholera that is from asia it wasn't even from that part uh, of the americas um you know and you see things like that happen and you just go oh, me is this sent by some power or are you just telling me this is just it that's that's like that's life and death and because people didn't understand the warnings they were kissing the dead bodies once their family members died uh. and they were getting these the bacterial infection cholera so you know you're supposed to seal the body up as soon as someone dies of it um so so i'm trying about uplifting moments here um well that was that, a look, heartwarming uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, a heartwarming walk through cholera uh, yeah, yeah, with Ross sorry, Kemp. Yeah, yeah. No, no, there, but there are also moments of complete joy. I've never laughed as hard when I've been shot at. And you come out of it alive. I really, truly giggled my, my, my nuts off because with my cameraman, you know, because it was that close. You were at a moment literally never going to breathe again. You're never going to go home again. You're never going to have a orange juice again. Was that cameraman the person you was closest to? Yeah, I mean, and you've got to think about what he's doing. I've got 360, I can look around. Um, he's looking for a matchbox in black and white. Oh, yeah, Do you know yeah. what I mean? I mean, and, and look at that moment in PNG, right? So they're, I'm, I'm, oh, Ross, it was very brave of you. I was like, gently pushing, don't put that gun away from me, please. But he filmed all the way through it. He had a gun in his back. And I think the gun he had in his back looked like a bit more bigger hole he's going to put in him. That was Jonathan Young. But I've, I've worked with three or four brilliant guys, uh, Mark McCauley, Fred, Fred Scott, real famous war cameramen. And they are a breed unto themselves. Yeah. And they've got better war stories than me. <laughs> oh, man. that's I can't imagine. But that, that's, that's a lot. I mean, they're, they're, the, they're the moments of, of happiness. Um, that, that When you come through something like that and the, the literal joy... Of being a human being and being alive and I, and I totally agree with you that there is so much more good in us than there is bad it's just that we concentrate on the bad or that's what we do you seem to pathologically <laughs> ask you for an uplifting ending and you start going I am I'm coming I, I think there's, there's so much good around the world trust me and there's also a lot more happiness sometimes found and this does sound very in brackets you know outside of that commercial um, you know you must have this you must buy this I can walk through favelas where people have got nothing and they're laughing and they're giggling. They've got a pair of flip-flops, a pair of shorts and a vest. But then they're cooking some, you know, old chicken up and uh, and having a few beers and laughing and dancing the night away, Freaking. you know? Yeah. So there is there, there's a lot to be said for that. And a lot to be said, said for, you know, just going out, smelling the roses. Will you do your list of countries that you've been to in alphabetical order, as I feel like it would be an interesting thing I'll to I've got it written down here. <laughs> so it is Afghan or films you made Af 15 it sounds like a really bad football score Afghan 15 Australia 1 <laughs> Brazil 3 uh, ABC Colombia 2 uh, Bulgaria Democratic Republic of Congo Djibouti El Salvador Ecuador East Timor France 2 Guatemala 1 Haiti 1 Honduras 1 India 1 Iraq 1 Israel 2 Italy 1 Jamaica 1 Kenya 1 Kenya 2, Lebanon 1, Libya 1, Madagascar 1, which is a great place, Malaysia 1, Mexico 2, Mongolia, Mongolian Nazis, never forget that, Mozambique, <laughs> I bought nearly a ton of ivory, sadly there, Nigeria, New Zealand, Northern Ireland, Oman, well we went through Oman, Pakistan, PNG, Philippines, Poland, no queue, uh, <laughs> Romania, Rwanda, Somalia, Singapore, South Africa, Syria, Tanzania, UK, US, Venezuela, and Wales. 
Amazing. <laughs> but gotta no, do Zaire and I, Qatar. That's right. Finish yeah, this yeah, yeah, shit yeah, off. Yeah, gotta do Qatar and, and Yemen. Yeah. And Yemen. <laughs> It's only a matter of time. Oh, Ross, that was amazing. It was so beautiful to talk to you. You've got to write a book, mate. You've got to write a series of books. That's what I think. Do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because there's so I'm much to be depth you, and mate. thoroughness to it. And, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think it would be a beautiful project. I'd read Thank them. you, sir. Cheers. Thanks for your time, Ross. Thank you, man. Beautiful. Thank you. Love you. You too. Cheers, man. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode with the beautiful Ross Kemp. Remember, let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. That's at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin. In the meantime, why not leap back into the past and listen to me talking to Candice Owens. Very passionate discourse in that particular episode. Or Francesca and Raul Martinez, adorable British socialists. Um, you can hear the full gamut explained if you plant yourself amidst those two poles. Please sign up to my mailing list on russellbrand.com so I can communicate directly into the middle of your mind. You'll be the first to know about upcoming shows, which I've you know doing a few of these days, and receive exclusive mailing list only content. Also, I do secret, very secret meetings, secret gatherings. And if you're on the Russell Brand mailing list, you'll hear about those secret gatherings. Have a look at Rebirth on Netflix if you ain't watched it yet. But most of all, thank you very much for joining us on Under the Skin from Luminary Media.